Good morning. Uh, the scripture text for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. It's also on page 979 in your pew Bibles as well. But let me read that for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. So thanks for having me this weekend. Um, not that you had anything to do with that, but thanks for having me nonetheless. Uh, my wife Holly and I had a great time here with our three little boys, uh, six, four, and almost two. Uh, but it was great to get them out of the city, away from the concrete jungle, and there's just so much open space, beautiful beaches here. So we had a wonderful time here this weekend. Someone asked uh, the comedian Jim Gaffigan, who has five kids, raises them, in Manhattan, asked him, what's it like raising five kids in the city? And his response was, it's like you're drowning. And then somebody hands you a baby, right? That's, that's exactly what it's like. I, I can't think of a better description of what it's like raising uh, three young, energetic boys on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So it's great to be here again. Uh, I am a, an assistant pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church on the East Side. Uh, we used to meet at Hunter College, moved over to a smaller church, uh, a couple months ago, uh, but that's where I worship and serve. Um, but I wanted to dig deep into one element of the armor of God, and that's the helmet of salvation in particular. And just to provide a little context uh, of this passage, and if you've seen the movie The Usual Suspects, one of the classic lines from that movie is, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist, right? And that's why the Apostle Paul the author of this whole book wrote this particular passage to remind us that our main opposition, our main enemy in this world is not people, it's not other things that we often see with our visible eye. Our main enemy in this world is the invisible forces of darkness, the invisible world that's around us seeking to discourage us, harm us, get us down, discourage us, shame us. There's an invisible force, Satan and his army of darkness out to attack us. But we're not left helpless on our own to fend for ourselves. It says here in Ephesians 6 that we're left with all these different resources at our disposal, an entire armor of God that we can put on. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I did want to kind of zero in on one element in particular, and that's the helmet of salvation. You know, the helmet, of course, protects what is perhaps the most important part of our bodies, our, our heads, our brains. And I wanted to spend pretty much the whole time talking about this part of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation. And I have three points. The first is the need of salvation, and the second is the hope of salvation, and then lastly is the cost of salvation. So it's the need, 
the hope, and then the cost. So first, the need of salvation. Well, just to zoom out a little bit, what is salvation? Salvation is simply to be, to be saved from something, to be rescued from some kind of perilous situation. And we all need to be saved from something. But what sense in particular is the Apostle Paul talking about here? From the moment we get out of bed and we check our phones and we see the news, we are immediately reminded of all the brokenness that's in the world around us. Mass shootings, economic inequality, global poverty, human trafficking, sickness, death, the list goes on and on. I want to take you back to some years ago on December 26, 2004, and many of you remember this, perhaps one of the, the worst human disasters in our entire history. But on December 26, 2004, a massive earthquake and a tsunami completely devastated South and Southeast Asia, wiping out close to 230,000 people in a matter of hours. And I was spending some time looking through some pictures in the aftermath of that tsunami. It's just absolutely crushing, just seeing mothers scanning walls filled with pictures of little children trying to identify their own, Uh, mothers lying prostrate on the ground, overcome with grief and pain and emotion, just wailing at the loss of life, huge trucks filled to the brim with body bags, entire towns and villages completely wiped out. And the commentator David Brooks, a few days later, wrote a column, and he wrote this, In the newspaper essays and television commentaries reflecting upon it all, there would often be some awkward passage as the author tried to conclude with some easy uplift, a little bromide about how wonderfully we all rally together and how we are all connected by our common humanity in times of crisis. Of course, the world's generosity has indeed been amazing, but sometimes we use our compassion as a self-enveloping fog to obscure our view of the abyss. Somehow it's wrong to turn this event into a good news story so we can all feel warm this holiday season. It's wrong to turn it into a story about us who gave rather than about them whose lives were ruined. It's certainly wrong to turn this into yet another petty political spat, as many tried disgustingly to do. This is a moment to feel deeply bad for the dead and for those of us who have no explanation. These are the moments in life when you look around the world and you think to yourself, this is just not the way things are supposed to be. And there are just absolutely no words. I'm reminded of a mom who I knew from college, and she lost her eight-year-old daughter, a little girl by the name of Ava Brightly, a precious little girl, mature beyond her years. And some of you may have heard of the story. Um, She chronicled her journey through the grief and the pain online in an online journal. And my family and I kind of tracked along with her as she's sharing some of these deeply heartbreaking stories of losing her little girl. And you can go online and find these stories for yourself. But it's a, a journey of holding on to the promises of God in moments of absolute despair and darkness. And one thing that she wrote stood out to me, and this is what she said in one of her journals. The profound pain of losing her is only eclipsed by the grueling work of carrying on without her. It's not just hard during the holidays. No, we we feel her absence in the everyday moments. Those are the times it stings the most. 
They say that as death nears, the one dying may begin clinging to the person from whom she needs support and permission to let go. And I was that person for Ava. The last few days, Ava held onto my finger even in her sleep. It was like she was asking for my blessing to start her journey home. And she needed me to be okay with her leaving, so I did my best to convince her that I was. But I wasn't, and I'm still not. Because how do you let go when there's still so much love left to give? It's hard to read and it's even harder to write, but grieving is hard work, and it can't get done without hearts laid bare. So here it is, for better or worse. I miss Ava desperately. I can't let her go. I'm angry. It's lonely. I don't understand. We are still gasping, and it's not all better yet. It may never be. It's absolutely crushing. And again, you look at moments like that, you look at situations like that, and you think to yourself, that is just not how it's supposed to be. A parent losing her child, just not the way that it's supposed to be. And the more I have conversations with people, especially people who have lived, experienced a lot of life, and one thing that they often tell me is that as the optimism of youth starts to fade, as all the weddings start to get replaced with funerals, right? all the baby showers celebrating life, all that's to come, start to be replaced by funerals, the reality that all of this will one day come to an end. And it's sobering. And it seems like as time goes on and on, there are more things to grieve than there are to celebrate. And perhaps this is why the author, David Foster Wallace, which is a little quote that I pulled, uh, which is on the cover of your bulletin, perhaps this is why he wrote what he did, just explaining how we often fill our lives with distraction after distraction to keep ourselves from being bored. Because when we're bored, we can't distract ourselves from feeling some other kind of deeper pain that lurks inside all of our hearts. And so we fill our lives with cell phones and social media and news and events and experiences because we're trying to keep ourselves from feeling some kind of deeper pain, perhaps of our mortality or of the meaninglessness of life or even the futility of life or gratuitous suffering. We're trying to numb ourselves from feeling the pain of these things. And yet, if this isn't already depressing enough, there's, there's more. And when G.K. Chesterton was once asked, what, in your opinion, is the most broken thing in the world? What is most wrong with the world around you in your perspective? He took a moment to reply. And then simply he said, dear sir, I am. What he was referring to was sin, our desire to live independent of God, our desire to do as we please, to live lives separated from God. In the parable of the prodigal son, in I think in a very apt analogy of the essence of sin, one of the sons asks the father for his inheritance, basically asking his father to die so that he could have the inheritance, runs away from home, lives as he pleases, does whatever he wants, and that, to me, is a very keen analogy of what it means to live sinfully. It doesn't always have to be so egregious like that, but in our heart of hearts, we want to do as we please. We want to be our own gods. And the Bible says that when this happens, when this happens, 
everything collapses into this downward spiral. Everything starts to disintegrate. When you look back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-3, when Adam and Eve decided to live as they pleased, that spawned this entire downward spiral. And everything that you see that's wrong with the world, whether it's sin, disease, sickness, corruption, poverty, death, all of this is interconnected and it's all a function of sin. All of it was ruined by sin. You see, God once created the world with perfect harmony, created all of us to live in his presence in an unmediated presence of God, living with him, enjoying him, being with each other without sin, corruption, disease, illness. That was how it was supposed to be from the beginning. And that's the reason why God sent his son Jesus into the world to reverse the effects of sin, the curse and destruction, to reverse it all, to make things new, to bring things back to its original form. But if that's the case, then why is it that there is still much sin and destruction in the world around us? Well, that's because when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation, it's more than just about being saved one time in the past. If you're a Christian, perhaps that's the idea that you have or grew up with, that you're saved at one point in time in the past. And that, of course, is true. In Scripture, in Romans chapter 8, it says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a past dimension of being saved, of salvation. One saved always saved. But there is also a present dimension of being saved. The Apostle Paul also says elsewhere in Philippians that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? There's a, there's a present dynamic of salvation. Even though we were saved from the penalty of sin, we are slowly, progressively being saved from the power of sin as we live our lives day to day, more and more trying to grow in holiness, trying to be more like Christ, But finally, there is a future dynamic of salvation, that even though we were saved in the past and we are continually being saved now, we haven't experienced once and for all this future salvation, what some people call glorification or consummation, that one point in the future when Jesus comes back again, we will be restored and made new. And this is primarily what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 6, when he talks about the helmet of salvation, one of the main ways that we can thwart, we, we can protect ourselves against the advances of the enemy is by putting on the helmet of salvation. What that's referring to is the future salvation. And how do I know that? Well, elsewhere, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians that the helmet of salvation refers to the hope of salvation the hope of our future salvation. And this is the hope that undergirds us in times of despair and discouragement. This is what we put on our heads to protect us. It's the hope of future salvation. But what is the hope of future salvation? So I just talked about the need of salvation, and in point two, the hope of salvation. You know, I just shared about Ava Brightley and her mom. One thing that her mom wrote was this. I don't know much, but I know this. Whatever is broken will be fixed. Whatever is hurt will be healed. Whatever is lost will be found. One day, someday, soon. Now, where does somebody find the resources to be able to write and believe something like that? 
What Ava's mom is talking about here, what she's holding on to in the moments of despair, is the hope of a future salvation. It's the helmet of salvation. There's a story by, um, of a woman named Florence Chadwick, and she was a long-distance uh, English swimmer who was known for swimming across the English Channel back and forth uh, two times. And for her next adventure, she wanted to swim from one of the islands off the coast of Los Angeles, 26 miles to the coast of California. And as she was swimming, the day was a pretty bad day to swim in. The conditions were miserable. It was, it was foggy. It was cold. She could hardly see the boats that were kind of going along with her on her side. And yet she still managed to swim for 15 hours. I can't even imagine that. I can't do anything for 15 hours, let alone swim across a cold body of water. But she managed to swim for 15 hours, and she got to a point of exhaustion, and she wanted to quit. And her mother was in one of the boats kind of going along beside her, and she was pleading with her mom to just pull her out. I can't go on any longer. Just pull me out and bring me into one of the boats. But her mom kept encouraging her, keep going. The coast is so near. I can see it. Keep going. Florence would try, but she couldn't keep going. She stopped swimming. And so they had to bring her out into the, from the water and into one of the boats. And as she was sitting there in the boat, she could finally see the coast, and it was less than half a mile away. A day later at a news conference, they asked Florence what the experience was like. And what she said was this, All I could see was the fog. But I think if I had seen the shore, I would have made it to the end. You see, for Christians, the shore for us is the hope of our salvation, the hope that one day we will be rescued, that everything in this world around us that is broken will one day be made right. There's an idea of salvation that I used to hold, and perhaps some of you could relate to this, but it's the idea of salvation that I, I'm saved personally at one point in the past from my sins, and I'm just going through this life kind of holding myself up, tolerating everything until one day when God is going to take my soul, my disembodied soul, and take me to this ethereal place called heaven where I can float around in clouds, recline, and sing songs by myself forever and ever, right? And to be honest, I, I just never really wanted to be there, right? Uh, I hate to admit it, but that idea of heaven just wasn't all that attractive to me. There's a cartoon, um, The Far Side Comics by uh, Gary Larson. There's one cartoon in particular where it shows a man with uh, the wings of an angel behind his back, floating, a halo around his head. He's sitting by himself without anything to do. And the caption at the bottom, it's reading his thoughts. It reads, I wish I had brought a magazine, right? <laughs> I think that's the idea that many of us have of heaven where... We're not really doing much. It's our disembodied spirits kind of floating around in this ethereal place. But thankfully, this is not the primary image that the Bible gives when it talks about this idea of heaven. What happens after we die? The main way that the Bible talks about heaven is using physical language. There's more continuity between this life and the next. It talks about a new heavens and a new earth. It talks about a new city that's going to come down, a garden. It talks about a kingdom. Right? These are all physical places that are continuous with our experience now. 
The Bible doesn't say that the world is going to be destroyed and God in his mercy is just going to pluck out the select few away from the fiery destruction that's going to envelop the world. God isn't an inventor who made a mistake and is one day going to throw everything out that he made. The language that the Bible uses is of restoration, of redemption, renewal, right? These aren't just catchphrases. These are actually what God is going to do one day in this future salvation. He's going to remake everything. When, when Jesus came to the earth 2,000 years ago, he announced that salvation had come. And one of the main things that he said was that my kingdom has now come on the earth. And what he started to do is significant. What he did was he started to restore sight to the blind. He would restore the ability to walk to the lame. He would restore liberation to the captive. He would restore wholeness to those who were ill. He would restore life to the dead. You see, Jesus came into the world to bring his kingdom, a kingdom of restoration, redemption, remaking everything. This, this is the hope of our salvation. This is the helmet of salvation that we put in that can protect us against despair. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a prophetess by the name of Anna who spent her days, her nights in the temple praying and fasting. And one day, she had finally met the little baby Jesus, and she was overcome with joy. And what she said, what the Scripture says about her is this, that she went to Mary and Joseph and gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, where did the prophetess Anna place her hope? Yeah, it was her own salvation for herself, but it was also the salvation of her community, the salvation of her family, and the salvation of her entire city, Jerusalem. That was what she was looking forward to. And where do we place our hope? Do we place it in our own salvation? Or do we also place it in the salvation of our community? This body here, this city, Long Island, the entire world. The author Randy Alcorn gave this description about what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. And I'm going to read this for you. I found it so hope-giving. And he writes this. So look out a window. Take a walk. Talk with your friend. Use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book. But imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast, beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed, and empty. And if you're not in a particularly beautiful place, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever been, complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, or snowdrifts. Think of friends, family members who love Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. And all of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You're laughing, playing, talking, reminiscing. 
You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or orange, and you take a bite. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. And now you see someone coming towards you, and it's Jesus, with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. At last, you're with the person you were made for, in the place you were made to be. Everywhere you go there will be new people and places to enjoy, new things to discover. What's that you smell? A feast. A party's ahead, and you're invited. There's exploration and work to be done, and you can't wait to get started. This, this is the hope of our future salvation that we can rest in. This is the hope of salvation that we can put on as a helmet to guard us against despair and depression and discouragement. And what starts to happen is that everything we do in life starts to be infused with significance and meaning. The relationships and friendships we enjoy, the sports that we play, the recreation that we take part in, the walks that we take alongside the beach, the hikes that we take through nature, all these things matter because all of these things are eternal. God is not going to do away with them. In fact, God is going to make them even better than before, apart from the effects of sin and the curse. There is a continuity between this life and the next. And in fact, eternal life doesn't happen when we die. Eternal life starts right now, in this moment. God has already broken into this world with his kingdom, and he's starting to remake all things right now. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, we ask God to let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's not something that we have to wait for after we die. It's something that we ask for right now. We want God to start restoring, remaking, and renewing right now in this moment. The most important thing, though, when we look upon this new city, the new heavens and the new earth, at the center of it all will be the presence of God himself. All the times when we've thirsted for intimacy, all the times we've longed for romantic love, all the times we've craved beauty, all these things will finally find their end when we see Jesus face to face in our new glorified bodies, freed from the effects of sin, in our perfection, in our holiness. We will be able to see for the first time the face of Jesus face to face, unmediated, And in that moment, all of our strivings, all of our longings will eventually find the rest when we see him up close for the first time. And what makes all of this possible, of course, is what Jesus came into the world to do and to undo. And that brings me to my last point. So we looked at the need of salvation, the hope of salvation, and now the cost of salvation. In one of... My favorite passages in all the New Testament, in John chapter 11, it tells the story of a family, two sisters, Mary and Martha, who had just lost their brother Lazarus to a premature death. And when they see Jesus, they come to him in tears, and they ask him, Jesus, why weren't you here before? If you had just been here, we wouldn't have lost our son to this death. 
And when Jesus saw Mary and Martha, when he saw her, their family, he had compassion on them. What the scripture actually says is that he was angry, not at them, but he was angry at death itself. He was furious at the brokenness of the world that he saw all around us because he knew he was once there at the creation of the entire world. And he knew that death and disease and sickness, this was not how the world was supposed to be. And he was furious. And when Jesus, when he looked upon the victims of that catastrophic disaster in South Asia, the effects of the tsunami, when he looks upon that, he grieves. When he looked upon the victims of the mass shootings in Texas and Ohio, he had compassion on them as well. And when he looks upon you in your brokenness, in your shame, in your despair, he looks upon you with compassion and he also grieves. And the scripture says that he is not a God who sits on his throne. He's a God who comes down in your pain and he weeps. But what he does, he doesn't leave you in your pain. What he does is he brings a resurrection. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But what he knew when he did that, what it would eventually come at the cost of his own life. In the economy of God, the way that he would remake everything was to undo himself. The way that he would make everything new was to take on the effects of sin and destruction upon himself on the cross. To make all things right, Jesus knew that he would have to die. And that was the cost of your salvation. That was the cost of our salvation. That was the cost of the renewal of the entire world. And one day, one day God will also raise you from the dead. One day God will bring wholeness to this broken world. He will bring his restoration and make everything new. He looks upon your own brokenness, and he will mend you. He will make you whole. He will make this entire world whole. And one day you will also get to see Jesus face to face for the first time. That is the hope of our salvation. That is the helmet of salvation that we put on. When the spiritual forces of enemy seek to destroy us, when they seek to discourage us, when they want us to wallow in our despair and discouragement, we can put on the hope of salvation, the helmet of salvation. We can look forward to the day when God will make all things new. But again, this eternal life, this future salvation, it's not something that we have to wait for the moment we die, but it's something that we can take hold of right now. Eternal life starts now, in this moment. And whenever we pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that is indeed what we're praying for, that God's future salvation would start to break into our lives, into our communities, and into this world. That is the hope that we can cling to in those moments of darkness. Won't you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that though we strayed from you, we wanted to live our lives separated from you, doing our own thing, being our own gods. And as a result, this whole world spun out of control and is still in this downward spiral of destruction. But we thank you that because of the cross, because of what Jesus came into the world to do, 
we are now freed from bondage to our sin. And this whole world is freed from the bondage to destruction. And we place our hope in that future salvation when one day you will come again to restore everything, to make everything new, and to bring wholeness where there is brokenness. And it's not something that we have to wait, wait for. It's something that breaks into our world now. When Jesus came into the world, he declared that his kingdom had come. Not completely, but it had indeed come. And that's what we pray for now. We ask that this eternal life would start to break into our lives now, in this moment. And that you would start to bring restoration, redemption, here in our own lives, in our families, our community, in this world around us. We thank you for grace that sustains us, that protects us against the enemy, that keeps us from despair and hopelessness. We pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.